Welcome to Paint Radio with your hosts, Emily Howard and Andrew Dwyer. Paint Radio, time for Paint Radio. I'm Andrew Dwyer. Emily Howard, once again, is not in the studio, but she did call in. Let's just say, I can't disclose exactly where she is or why, but let's just say she is somewhere where you're only allowed one phone call, and she chose to make that one phone call to Paint Radio. Emily, one, thank you. Two, how are you? You're welcome. And, you know, obviously doing quite well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perhaps, uh, no. Everyone knows I'm a kidder. I kid because I don't care. Everyone knows. That. Of course. Emily, when you were in junior high, those five glorious years you spent in junior high, <laughs> yes. did you take a home ec class? I don't remember, but I feel like I did. <laughs> okay, I how do about, feel like there was a home ec class. Okay, how about in high school? Did you take an economics class or a personal finance class? Uh, no, not in high school, I don't think. Really? I don't even think they they don't have that, do they? I mean, that's like the one thing we kind (laughs) of failed to teach. Well, they do now. The country is personal finance. Do they? Have your kids done that? Have they taken a personal finance class? Oh, that's awesome. I mean, let's face it. No, we did not. We didn't have that. We had an economics class, but... My kids go to the school of Dwyer, of course. They learn things that very <laughs> few people kids. can learn. <laughs> so that's not a good example. But what we're talking about today is certainly it goes far beyond what you learn in a home ec class or a personal <laughs> finance class. It sort of touches on the same veins. We're talking about accounting, bookkeeping, finances, taxes, all these great things. But before we get to our guest today, I want to say, I'm happy to say that we are sponsored today. We have a sponsor for this podcast, and that is Benjamin Moore. And we're going to talk to them a little bit later about their contractor rewards program. But first, let's get to our guest. And that is Morgan Ray, Chief Operating Officer of Bookkeeping for Painters. Morgan, how are you? I'm doing well, and what a wonderful setup that now I'm, <laughs> I'm poised to come in with all of the knowledge to take us really far. <laughs> at least a little bit farther than the high school finance and economic <laughs> courses. I like to set the bar very high for our guests because then in comparison, people expect very little from me, which I find works best for me. Brilliant. I think that gives you a really high emotional intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, good Andrew job. Has very low emotional intelligence. <laughs> good, good job booking Morgan. I already like him. This is going to be a regular. (laughs) So bookkeeping for painters, boy, that is uh, specialized, Morgan. Do you really focus only on painting contractors? We do. So bookkeeping for painters was founded in 2016 by um, Daniel and Melissa Honan, former painting business owners themselves who decided to take their extensive experience in accounting services um, and operations management and apply it to very specialized professional services in accounting, basically with the idea of let's help those people who we know how to help best, and that is painting business owners. I think our current client base is a little over 50 different businesses all over the United States, and while all of them are in some way, shape, or form painters, we do have an interesting service mix in there as well. As you're probably aware, most of the listeners are probably aware there's a lot of serial entrepreneurialism that goes on a lot of interesting tangentially related services so there's a lot of variety 
That's awesome. And by the way, that's bookkeepingforpainters.com. If you want to look that up, we'll certainly mention that again. If you don't mind, let's start really broadly. And let's say you've got a little bit of time to convey three, four, five quintessential points that you would love most painting contractors to know that maybe too many of them don't or too many of them struggle with. And we'll dive deeper into these topics later, but just broadly, what are three or four things that you wish more contractors understood? So I guess we should start this off by kind of addressing the most basic thought that everyone has. This is a very tedious, boring subject that nobody likes to invest a lot of time or energy thinking about, let alone managing for themselves personally or professionally. So that's kind of where bookkeeping for painters comes in and that we like to take a lot of the headache off of busy business owners' hands and try to really help people save some money in taxes and also take the information that people are gathering from in their business and turn it into something that's a little more usable, a little more accessible, maybe a little more fun to talk about if we start talking about strategic management within businesses. So I guess that's the first thing is that I'd like to point out the fact that there's a couple of ways to look at accounting. The first one being the, I have to collect receipts and take them to my tax guy. And once a year, he crunches some numbers and I get the IRS off my back. That's one way to think about it. And it's certainly something that needs to be addressed. But you can also think about kind of managing your numbers in a much more proactive way. Think about your business as a little bit of a controlled experiment of a kind. And there's a lot of interesting information that's flowing around. And if you're interested in really growing and being good at running a business and specifically running a painting business, there's definitely a few layers deeper that we can look and use that information to your advantage. So that's kind of my big takeaway. Accounting is about more than just taxes. We can get into some pragmatic tips, things that we can implement on a day-to-day basis, just kind of make your life a little bit easier. And I think the other big takeaway is that when it comes to approaching both the tax side and the management side, it really helps to go into it first off by setting clear goals and expectations for yourself as a business owner. What are you looking to get both personally and professionally out of your work, out of your quality of life? That really illuminates kind of what you need out of the business. And then that illuminates what you need out of your accounting system. And it just kind of guides everything else. So what do you think, Morgan, most painting contractors, I don't think, come with a financial background. And even if you have an outside company handling your accounting or you've got bookkeepers or you're using bookkeeper for painters, are there a few accounting concepts that you need to at least be aware of and have a pretty decent working knowledge of? Things like gross profit, net profit, and accrual versus cash accounting. Would you say that there are just a couple things that you need to know and understand? Yeah, there's definitely some things that are a little bit easier for everyone to kind of step in and get a handle on and orient themselves in the, the accounting realm. So I guess the first one would be just think about accounting as it's a system of organization. What we do now in the U.S. following the generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP is based on what's called a double entry accounting system that's been around for hundreds of years. And essentially why we do things the way we do, people have probably hear phrases like debits and credits and things floating around and it never quite means what you think it means. But basically all of it's designed to, to be very, very accurate. It's all about having checks and balances. So that's kind of where the basics of the system come in. Now, when it comes to things like cash or accrual basis, those again are just a different way of thinking about and organizing the information. Most of the people listening to this probably do a little bit of both. If you have a good accounting system or bookkeeping system in place, 
You can usually switch back and forth, but the good rule of thumb is that cash basis is really just cash in and cash out. When somebody hands you a check or hands you a dollar bill, and when you spend it, that's what the cash basis accounting looks like. And accrual is more based on billing. So if you've received a bill or if you've sent an invoice, then we start crunching numbers at that level. From a practical day-to-day perspective, I think what most business owners need to remember, especially when they're first starting out, is basically bookkeeping and accounting 101 is that when it comes to business accounting, keep your business stuff separate from your personal. That right there is going to make everything easier, no matter who you're working with, if you're doing it yourself, who you have helping you with taxes, get that stuff separated. For people who have very little working knowledge of finance, or they feel like they just need a little bit better, are there some resources or there's some books or there are some places that you feel like many contractors probably need to check out and kind of brush up their skills? Just some nice, easy learning tools. More than books, I would say a lot of this makes a lot more sense for people if you approach it visually. And so I would really encourage people to take a look on YouTube and look for basic bookkeeping or accounting videos for small business owners. Our team and staff specialize in QuickBooks Online. And I know that Intuit and QuickBooks has a lot of really helpful little tutorials and videos that walk you through some of the basics. There's a lot of great information and material online out there. And I think it should be not too difficult for people to go out there and find something that kind of works for them and their learning style. Obviously, we've done financial podcasts before. And one, I forget, Emily, who it was who said this. Normally, I would just take credit for it, but I'm not going to do that. But the concept was, even if you hire an accountant, you have someone who does the books for you, you can't ride along in the backseat as the work is being done. You got to at least ride shotgun and look over the numbers and listen intently and understand what the accountant is talking about. It's not an Uber driver. Get out of the backseat, people. So since it is the season for taxes... Again, I'm the king of broad general questions. If somebody walks into your office and really looks like they need help, what is some of your best general broad advice going into tax season for contractors who are struggling? So like I said before, step number one for anybody and start now, if you haven't done it before, now is the best time to get going. Separate out your business and your personal. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure that you open a business checking account and just run everything through it. And if you're using credit cards for the business, make sure you have a business credit card and those are your go-tos. We don't want mixing personal meals and business. So even if you don't have kind of a more formal bookkeeping system or a person that you're working with, just that one little step can make it so much easier for you to kind of manage all of that information. At the end of the year, when you're filing taxes, if you don't have time to look at it at any other point, it makes it easier then. But it certainly makes it easier if you're doing it a little more hands-on throughout the year, which would be the goal. So first one would be, you know, separating those out, have a dedicated bank account, credit card account. And at that point, you can export that information out into spreadsheets and you can kind of see what you're doing and play with it a little bit by hand. When you're first starting out learning some of those basic Excel skills and just kind of being able to pull things out and have an idea of your budgets and what you're spending, those are the really great first steps. And that helps you a lot when it comes to getting to take advantage of some of the tax deductions that we'll probably get to dive a little bit deeper into here. Emily had kind of mentioned before about some of the gross profit or net profit and those terms that get rolled around. Those are things that come into play when you have a slightly more formal bookkeeping system in place. Start using something like QuickBooks and you can start running more formalized reports. And so once you get to that point and you can run reports with the business, like your profit and loss or your income statement, 
that's really where I think most business owners live because they want to see what they're spending and what they have coming in. You can get some really great ideas about exactly what you're spending, if you're meeting your budgets, how profitable your jobs are, what you can afford to pay yourself, how you can grow your team. And that's really the jumping off point for all of the more interesting, meaty discussions that you can have beyond just the tax savings. So are there any big mistakes that you see? Like when people come to you, I'm sure you all have a lot of contractors that pop into you just as tax season is coming to a close and those due dates are creeping up. Have you seen when reviewing maybe some preliminary tax statements for contractors, a couple of mistakes that you see that are relatively common? Yeah, you know, there's a few kind of common pitfalls that people fall into. So I guess just to run through a few of them, one of the big ones that we see are people coming in and all that they have are those credit card and those bank statements. And that's great. You need at least that first level of information. But a lot of people kind of come into it with this mentality, like they don't have to keep receipts anymore because of the fact that they have a digital record in your bank and in your credit card statement. The big takeaway for that is that your bank and your credit card statements is proof that you did spend money, but it's not enough documentation for the IRS as far as knowing what you were spending the money for and establishing that it was a reasonable and necessary business expense, which is like the foundational principle that's relevant to everything in deciding whether or not you get to successfully write it off. The number one thing is establish some kind of system for yourself, whether it's a shoebox full of receipts or you can get a little more sophisticated and use a cloud-based receipt collection software like we do. Get some kind of system in place, make sure that you're documenting. And then I think it's really important for people to gain a little bit of a better understanding of there's a few specific items that are deducted at a slightly different rate than your general business expenses that are 100% able to be written off. A little more information about that can really help people get organized about where they're going to store specific information or what to talk to their tax advisor about when it comes time to get in there and file taxes. So get a system in place and then get somebody in your corner who's pretty well educated about the different opportunities that you have available to you to really save money. We've got some questions directly from readers, correct, Emily? Do you mind if I jump into those? No, I don't mind at all. So the first question is, why is Andrew allowed on the podcast? That's that. I get that one a lot. It really feels off topic, though. So I think (laughs) we should... Make everyone else look great, right? (laughs) So I think we should table that for later, and we'll go to question two. So this person has apparently a $1 million painting business, and they're asking what... Should a contractor with a $1 million painting business pay himself or herself when it comes to W-2 wages that won't raise a flag when it comes time for audits, that won't raise flags with the IRS? So this is a really, really great question and one that we field a lot. So I'm going to preface this with the answer for anything in the tax world is, of course, going to be it depends. So I'm going to lay out a couple of the different scenarios that we have here. So the first one might be that you're a business owner, you're running a million dollar a year business and you're straightforward sole proprietor, at which point everything that the business does and makes in terms of net profit is passing through to you and you are not making W-2 wages on it. It's all coming through to you. You file your Schedule C with your personal tax return and you're paying self-employment taxes on that as well as income taxes. That's kind of our basic setup. If you're a basic partnership or a multi-member LLC, that's sort of what it looks like. Now, as an owner, you get into paying yourself 
W-2 wages, you become an owner employee, if you decide to implement some of these, maybe what we would call slightly more advanced tax strategies, which is really the big one that we see and that we would advise business owners on is choosing to elect and be treated as an S-corp. Now, there are two types of corporations, S-corporations and C-corporations, and both of those designations are something that we look at and recognize on the federal level. So on the state level, you might just be a single member LLC, but on the federal level, you could be an S-corp or a C-corp. Now, when it comes to wages, they are exactly the opposite of each other in terms of how much you want to pay yourself via W-2. So the short and sweet of it is, if you're a standard sole proprietor business owner, you're paying these self-employment taxes on every dollar that you earn, which is roughly a 15% tax rate, and then income taxes are taken out of it. If you elect to be treated as an S-corp, you essentially can pay yourself salary through the business and you can avoid a portion of those self-employment taxes. Now, and we'll talk about the wage thresholds there in a minute. So the goal with the S-Corp is that you pay yourself a reasonable salary. You're only paying those FICA taxes, your social security and Medicare taxes on the part that you're paying yourself through salary. And then the rest of the earnings, they're passing through to you and you're only paying income taxes on them. So that's kind of the neat legal loophole built in there. So with an S-Corp, you're aiming to pay yourself as little as possible through salary so that you can minimize the amount of those FICA taxes that you're paying. But you have to meet the IRS's guidelines for establishing a reasonable salary for yourself. And that's going to be based largely on the role that you play in the business, the percentage of time that you spend running the business. Um, and as a good rule of thumb, I would say if you're an actively engaged employee owner, you spend 100% of your time running the business, what you would probably aim to do is pay yourself out of all of the net profits of the business, about 50% of that should be paid to you through salary in order to ensure that you're hitting that reasonable threshold. There is some room for savings on that, but that's, again, one of those it depends kind of scenarios. If you're interested in saving a little bit more, it's a good idea to have a tax pro in your corner advising you on it. But if you're paying yourself in that 50% realm, you're unlikely to trigger any issues. Now, not to get too deep into it, but whenever it comes to the C-Corp status, that's a scenario that I find is actually one of the common misconceptions and issues that I sometimes see business owners have gotten themselves into. If there's confusion about what the different corporations mean, sometimes somebody will elect to be treated as a C-corporation, even if it's not really a good deal for them. And that's because the C-corporations are entities that are taxed twice. The corporation is paying an income tax before you as a business owner are getting any dollars out of it. So most of the time, if you're a smaller operation, a single owner, what we would call closely held, just like one or two partners, a C corporation is probably not a good idea for you because you're paying twice as much in income taxes, essentially. But if you are a C corporation owner, your goal is then the opposite. You want to pay yourself as much as possible in salary through the business, because at that point you're paying those payroll taxes and only one level of income tax instead of two. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It made sense to me, Emily. <laughs> does. It does make sense. And I think this is a common stumbling block for a lot of people, not just painting contractors, but all business owners. It is hard. And when it comes to kind of establishing your pay as an owner employee, it's one of those things that can be pretty tricky to do if you don't have an active financial management system in place. 
because of the fact that a lot of the times to take advantage of the savings, you want to pay yourself as a percentage of, of your net profit. If you don't really know very well what your net profit is, it can be really difficult to make sure that you're not overpaying. Let me jump in here because as I mentioned in the beginning, this podcast is sponsored by Benjamin Moore. And from Ben Moore, we have Joe Delafave. Joe, how are you? I am doing great. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Oh, man. Thank you for sponsoring the podcast. So I understand you want to talk a bit today about your loyalty program, Contractor Rewards. Tell us about that. So, yeah, absolutely. We introduced Contractor Rewards in late 2016. It's a loyalty program developed specifically for contractors. The program's free and open to all contractors. If you have a mobile device, your desktop, or by email, you upload your sales receipts of Benjamin Moore products, and they can be submitted for points. The website is contractorrewards.com, and the points vary depending on the type of product that you purchase. And again, these points can be redeemed for merchandise with no expiration date. It allows contractors to get merchandise for themselves, for their employees, for their business. Um, it's a reward for something that they're already doing. And contractors really will have visibility into new products from the program webpage. And we'll be able to get offers for exclusive product promotions at various times throughout the year. So we're excited that this continues to become bigger and a more important piece of the Benjamin Moore business, uh, specifically for contractors. So we're hoping that if anybody who's listening has not signed up yet or has not heard about it, uh, feel free to jump onto the website, contractorrewards.com. Sign up. It takes about 15 seconds. Or you can reach out to your local Benjamin Moore retailer or Benjamin Moore territory rep for any more information. Excellent stuff. Thank you, Joe. Contractor rewards from Benjamin Moore. And of course, thanks for sponsoring the podcast. Now, Morgan, back to you. Here's what I want to talk about. What are some red flags that could set off an IRS audit? So the first thing I have to say on that subject is it's both Good news, but it's a little bit bittersweet. And it is that most of the people who get audited by the IRS are the earners that are above the $5 million a year bracket. So, okay. <laughs> so that's some bittersweet news there. If you're making a lot, a lot of money, you're a lot more likely to get audited. But for everyone else who's not making over $5 million a year, your chances of being audited are really somewhere around 1%. Now, when you lay out like that, it sounds like it's pretty unlikely, but if you think about as a business owner, every year you file a business tax return, a personal tax return, you do that every year for 30 or 40 years, you're probably going to get deemed for an audit maybe once. Okay. So the good news is there are a couple of ways you can kind of limit the likelihood of that. Um, the biggest one actually is to incorporate as something a little bit more formal than a sole proprietor. Sole proprietors are a lot more likely to get dinged for an audit than someone who's, say, an S-corporation or a partnership. I can only um, hypothesize why that's the case, but I think it typically has to do with the fact that people who are operating as that more basic level of sole proprietor tend to not have quite as much knowledge about the tax system. And so they're at a higher likelihood for maybe messing up. And I think that that might be why the IRS takes a closer look at them. I would say the only other big red flags that maybe come out are there are certain items, like things like um, internet usage, telephone, sometimes the salary thing can be one that are 
pretty easy for the electronic systems that the IRS uses. Um, they can flag amounts for things like that that look sort of unnatural. And if they take a closer look at it, if somebody gets their eyes on a tax return, they kind of want to take a look in and they can sort of see what are generally reasonable amounts for things like that. And those are the types of things that if you get audited, they're going to come back and take a look at you and say, well, you wrote off this really large amount for cell phone usage and internet. How did you come up with this amount? And if you try to say that 100% of the cell phone usage or internet usage that you had was a business expense, that's something that they kind of typically frown on. The salary amounts is another one. It's really, really easy for them to track those due to the NAICS coding system that everyone uses when you fill out tax returns and such. So basically, you just want to make sure that you're kind of on par with what you're paying yourself with other people in the industry. And I guess the final component would be that it can be really, really useful for you to make sure that you're using a fairly consistent tax preparer from year to year, because there's a few things in tax return preparation that I sort of see that are almost stylistic about how some people fill them out. And a couple of the components of it, the big one for business returns being what's called a Schedule L, which is essentially your balance sheet on a tax return. That's a really big one that they want to see consistency in how it's filled out year over year. And if the amounts from the end of one year don't match the amounts at the beginning of the next year, that throws off a red flag and you're very likely to get a pair of human eyes going over your return. So here's a question from a, uh, well, I assume a smaller contractor, because the question is, any advice for how smaller contractors can reduce their tax burden? Yes. Don't file a tax return. (laughs) But you can expand on that, Morgan. I can expand on that. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with Andrew on that one. (laughs) Thank you. The best way to make sure you're reducing your tax burden and saving money is to file things on time. Even if you think that they're not fully correct, you know, you can file for extensions or at least get things filed on time because then you give yourself a little bit of room to correct. The one good thing, dare I say it, about the IRS is that they generally follow what we would call a reasonableness standard. So the expectation is not necessarily that you do everything 100% accurately all of the time, but they want to see that you made an effort, that you had your attention to it, that you were trying to file things on time. So they're a lot more forgiving if you file things and then try to go in and correct them and make amendments than if you just stick your head in the sand and run off with Andrew to the beach for a few years <laughs> and avoid your bills. So that's one. I would say just head it off at the pass. Don't fall victim to the penalties and stuff. Just try to stay on top of it from year to year. The second one, probably the slightly more interesting part of this podcast, maybe if we can say that any of this was interesting at all, is that there's a few different deductions that we could kind of talk a little bit more about that if you don't know about them, then obviously you can't take advantage of them. But if we talk about about them right here. Maybe, maybe you'll be able to save a little bit of money. So if everyone will entertain me, I can list through a few of these and feel free to jump in with any questions. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So the first one, and this might even apply to you, Emily and Andrew, although I know you have a studio and you probably have an office, but a lot of people who work in media are similarly to trades contractors predominantly have a home office. So the home office deduction is a big one that a lot of people might not think about or might not take advantage of. So in short, if your principal place of business, so be your home office, is in your home, you can get a deduction for the amount of space that you have dedicated to the business. Not to get too into it, there's a couple of different ways to calculate deductions for that. But if you're not diligently tracking your utility bills and such, that's okay. 
the IRS has put in an allowance in there for what we call a simplified home office deduction. And that's basically that every year when you file, you can get a deduction for $5 per square foot that you had dedicated to your business up to 300 square feet. So that's up to a $1,500 deduction that you can take if you're using that simplified calculation. So and probably a good warning there, the home office, very similar to the cell phone and the internet, don't try to write it all off. Yeah. And that's the thing. So if you're trying to do an actual expense deduction for the home office, what you're going to want to do is gather up all of your utility bills and your mortgage interest, and you're going to allocate a percentage to those. So if your home office is 20% of the square footage of your house, you can take 20% of those bills as a deduction. By the way, Emily, that $3,000 massage chair I bought and tried to pass off as an office chair didn't, didn't work. Did you, not work. You were right. You, audited. you called that, Emily. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to pass the massage chair off as a necessary business expense, but I can relate to wanting to try. It's very stressful working with Emily Morgan. I know. You have to start a side business. Maybe you're performing therapeutic massage for cats and dogs in the neighborhood. (laughs) You know, the chair just, you're getting a fringe benefit at that point, getting to sit in it yourself. You can only get this insight at bookkeepingforpainters.com, people. I'm telling you, you got to go there. That's what I'm here for. All of the great potential side businesses we can implement here. Yeah. So the, the home office deduction is a good one. Um, Another one is actually health insurance for sole proprietors, especially, but also something you can still take advantage of as a partner or an S-corp owner, too. So you can fully deduct health insurance expenses through the business as long as you're not eligible for subsidized health coverage through something like your spouse. So that's one that I think a lot of people get confused about or maybe forget to include on their business expenses or as what we would call an above the line write-off. And I've encountered some clients who think that if they make that S-corp election, then they're no longer eligible to take that health insurance deduction. But that's not the case. You definitely still can. That does, however, lead me into one of what I call the tax danger zones. And that is you need to be really careful, especially in a partnership, if you're trying to reimburse yourself and others for health expenses. It used to be the case that as a business owner, you kind of had free reign to reimburse people as you saw fit for things like healthcare expenditures and health insurance. When the Affordable Care Act went into play, it had an unintended consequence in that it outlined these very specific requirements for anything that was a group health insurance plan. And the way that the law was written, it came about that if you as a business owner are reimbursing multiple people for health insurance, you're considered to be providing a group policy. And usually those independent health insurance policies that people have that you're reimbursing them for are in violation of the ACA's regulations for group policy plans. So basically, if you have two partners, if they're unrelated and they're trying to run a healthcare insurance reimbursement through the business, you're suddenly in violation of the group plan regulations. And that carries some really, really hefty excise penalties associated with it. And I'm talking in the realm of $100 per day per violation. Oh, wow. So those add up 
really quick. It was an unintended consequence. It went into effect and everyone was kind of scrambling, trying to deal with that for a couple of years. Thankfully, there was a little bit of relief passed in the form of what we call a QSERA, which is a qualified small employer health reimbursement arrangement. Andrew, say that three times fast. <laughs> or just <laughs> once. <laughs> yeah, or just once. But a, um, a QSERA is the acronym. And that was basically some relief, a legislative relief that was passed. And it's basically an allowance now. So it's another tax tip too. So as a small employer, you might find that providing health insurance for your team or your employees is kind of priced out from you, but you want to provide some sort of benefit. You want to do it above the board. And a QSERA is a great way to do it. You can set a little budget for yourself, for the business and the team, and you pay an administrator to make sure that all of the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, and your employees can submit receipts for reimbursement, health insurance premiums, other health expenses, and they get a little reimbursement up to a cap through this. So that is the way around the big issues that can come from directly reimbursing employees for health expenses. I think people are going to have to rewind this. Yeah. Take notes. You know, not a problem if people have to listen two or three times. We'll take it. Do we have a third maybe? We've got, so we've got two deductions. Yeah. One more to round us off. Sure. I would say number three, the big deduction would be, I'm going to roll a couple in here actually. Let's talk about sort of automobile expenses and how and how those play into deductions that you can get for other loans and lines of credit since they kind of go together. But we'll start with automobile expenses. On a more basic level, if you're driving around your car for the business or something like that, you can take a standard mileage deduction for what you're using your own vehicle for in the business. And for 2019, that rate was 58 cents to the mile. If you're a contractor who's driving around a lot, going on a lot of estimates, that can add up really quickly. If you're a business owner, you can reimburse your employees for their mileage. Don't reimburse your subcontractors because you'll get into some really big issues there that we might talk about here in just a little bit. But um, yeah, so mileage, get in the habit of tracking your mileage and making sure that you're getting a reimbursement for that, because that's basically tax-free money that you're getting out of the business to pay for your vehicle usage. And then the one other little note for savings there was that any loans that you get for business purposes, often for automobiles or credit cards or lines of credit for the business, make sure that you're looking into how much you're spending on interest or fees for those, because that's all a write-off. And a lot of people kind of lose sight of that. They sort of gets lost in the shuffle and you're essentially paying income taxes and self-employment taxes on money that you're not taking home. You're paying it to a bank. So I'd say that those are two other big ones to uh, keep your eye on. So you mentioned briefly subcontractors. We actually did have one question about that as well. And it's how this year's new tax laws are going to affect 1099 subcontractors. Now, this may be a much larger conversation, but but are there a few things you can point out to us? Definitely. So the subcontractor conversation is definitely a big one that we can have a lot of further conversations about. But to kind of give us a bird's eye view, I think that this question from the listener was probably referring to what we're hearing about, like the new law that passed in California about the ABC test for subcontractors. So here's where we sort of get into one of those federal versus state level differences. So let's do a broad overview of each. 
When it comes to the federal level, the IRS, they follow three explicit tests for establishing whether or not somebody is actually a subcontractor versus an employee. A lot of business owners might get confused. It doesn't really matter what you call someone or what you think you might have some sort of a contract or agreement. Um, names don't matter. What matters are the three tests. And the three tests that the IRS looks at are behavioral control, how much control you have over directing the work that's being performed, financial control, how you're paying the person. So if you as a business owner are reimbursing or paying somebody hourly, that's very unlikely to be considered a subcontractor. And then the relationship. Is there a perception that it's going to be an ongoing business relationship? Is the person actually related to you? Those kinds of things play into the relationship test. So that's how the IRS looks at it. And there's a lot of nuance and things to be considered there. Haven't been really any major changes in the tax law as far as that. So I think that the law that this listener was probably referring to has to do with the state laws. So like in California, at the very beginning of the year, they had some new legislation passed where they now use what they call an ABC test for trying to decide or clearly differentiate between employees and subcontractors. The big difference here with this one is that essentially everybody is assumed to be an employee unless you can establish differently that they're not according to the ABC test. The three components of the ABC test are that A, the person that you're saying is a subcontractor has to be free from control and direction of you as the hiring business. It's that behavioral control test that the IRS looks at, but it's very explicit. B, the person who's performing this work as a subcontractor, the work itself has to be outside the usual course of your business as the hiring entity. So that right there and how it relates to painting contractors, if you're a painting business and you're trying to hire somebody as a subcontractor to perform painting, that's going to preclude them from being considered a subcontractor because that's your business that you're hiring them to do. So what this means is you as a painting business, you could hire a subcontractor to manage your social media or do some design work for you. But those people that you have doing what we would call line work, doing exactly what you're selling to customers, it seems like they no longer meet the definition for being a subcontractor. And then the third part of the ABC test is that the person that you're hiring as a subcontractor has to be engaged in an independently established trade or business. So basically, it has to be very clear that they are their own business owner. They have their own business that's somewhat formalized, whatever extent that looks like. So California passed this at the beginning of the year, and in doing so, they joined around, I think, 10 or 11 other states that also follow very similar guidelines. So to kind of list those off for the listeners, states that have similar guidelines to that include Hawaii, now California, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Pennsylvania, Vermont, New York, Connecticut, Idaho, Colorado, and Illinois. The wider reaching implications of this are that basically the way the IRS looks at and identifies employees and expects you to collect and withhold and remit taxes like you would for W-2 employees is different now than the way some of the states do. It poses a little bit of a quandary there. For <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure that I understood something correctly here. The second thing that you mentioned was essentially that you can't subcontract out the work that you're selling. Okay. So does this effectively mean that you cannot subcontract painters 
in California anymore. The way that the law is written reads that way to me. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but when it comes to tax law and the way that this law is written, that definitely seems to be the angle that this is going. Now, there's always a big difference and kind of a gap between when legislation like this is passed and what the actual follow through and enforcement period looks like. And there's usually some room for relief as businesses try to accommodate this into their current business processes. But if you live in California and do business in California, I definitely think it's a good time to get in touch with an advisor, either as an attorney or a tax advisor, and kind of touch base about what this looks like and what the implications are for you in running your business so you can avoid any penalties. During that subcontractor conversation, you mentioned behavioral control. And let me tell you, I've got some questions about my coworker. (laughs) But you mentioned you're not an attorney. I'm guessing you're also not a psychiatrist. And we're running out of time. So I'm going to be the better man and I'm not going to air my concerns about behavioral control. Instead, let's wrap this up with a final reader question. A reader asked specifically if you have any painting specific benchmarks for things like labor percentage and labor burden percentage and overhead and material percentage, types of things like that. Are there any that you care to share? Is it another issue of, well, it depends. It is, of course, an issue of, well, it depends, but I can give you a range, a starting point to look at. Every business is a little bit different with some of these numbers, especially depending on kind of what your service mix looks like and what your workforce makeup is, if you predominantly use subcontractors or employees, but just to run through what I would call the big five so that everyone can kind of get an idea. We look at all of these in terms of percentage of revenue. So this is what the expense looks like in percentage of revenue. Materials typically comes in around 15%. Direct labor, so these are the people that you have in the field performing the work, whether subcontractors or employees, generally aiming for 35 to 40% for a healthy business. And this is one that's been on a decidedly uphill trend in recent years. Everybody's paying a lot more for labor than historically they were. So this is where we're seeing increases in that direct labor expense. As a result, Gross profit margin is looking at around 45% for a healthy business. Overhead spending is coming in at around 38%. And then what we see as net profit is coming in at right around 6.24%. So just a little over 6% is the industry standard. So, of course, there's a lot of room to kind of play with those numbers and look at things a little bit differently and get different perspectives on the operational health of the business. But those are some, at least, that you guys can take and run with. But if I can, I would like to present one final big tax tip for savings that everybody should be taking advantage of. Look at you holding on to this till the end. Very impressive. I did. I held on to it through the end. You might want to snip and lead with this one at the beginning. Go right ahead. All right. So the big happy tax tip that all business owners should be taking advantage of is what we call the pass-through deduction also known as a qualified business income deduction. Is that one that you guys have heard of before? No. I think I have. You have. Well, good. I'm glad. Emily is tuned into the scene. (laughs) 
but I'm honest. <laughs> what this is, is to try to compensate for corporations getting sort of a locked in lower tax rate. When the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act went into effect, businesses now benefit from this pass-through deduction, qualified business income deduction. What it means for painting business owners and a lot of other business owners is that all of the net income that's coming through the business gets a 20% write-off, just right off the top before you pay any taxes on it. Cool. So it's really nice. So what's tricky here is if you run a pass-through entity, which is any partnership, S-corporation, or sole proprietorship, this deduction is taken on your personal return. So it's a qualified business income deduction that comes off of your personal tax return. And so that's kind of where sometimes it gets left off or forgotten. If you're filing your personal taxes yourself, just make sure that it's taken advantage of. The QBI qualified business income deduction, 20% write off of your business income. I like it. We talked about re-listening. That's the beauty of podcasts. You can just pause Rewind 15 seconds if you need to. But whenever we do these types of podcasts where we're talking about specific numbers, very quantifiable data, people eat it up. It's just tremendous. So, Morgan, thanks for putting up with me. Fabulous information. Like I said, Emily, good job booking guests for Paint Radio. Thank you. <laughs> Morgan, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, too. Hopefully anybody who fell asleep during that is waking up now. There's no chance anyone fell asleep. And again, that is Morgan Ray. She is the chief operating officer of Bookkeeping for Painters. You can check them out at bookkeepingforpainters.com. That's right. They specialize, like we do at APC, in painting. And again, thank you to Benjamin Moore and Joe Delafave for sponsoring the podcast, telling us all about Contractor Rewards. To learn more, go to contractorrewards.com. Thanks for listening. Emily, is there anything you want to plug before we say goodbye? I think our marketing manager is going to want me to say that you can listen to Paint Radio anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So please, please, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Anchor, whatever you use, go check us out and definitely subscribe. There you go. So back off, marketing manager. Quit pestering Emily. There, she said it. Gosh. Michael will love that. Oh, now he has a name? He does. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, we're APC. We love what we do. We're proud of what you do. Thanks for listening. Go to paintmag.com. Click the Paint Radio tab for even more podcasts. And have a great day. See ya. <laughs>